Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, February the 24th, 2023. It's that time again. That was the week, my weekly show with my old friend Keith Tier. As you can tell from my background, I'm in a hotel room in New York City. I'm on the East Coast and it's 2.30 p.m. or a little after 2.30 p.m. I kept on changing the time and uh, I think Keith was a little mystified, but I wanted to make it happen, this show, at 2.30 p.m. because, of course, it's been that kind of week, a 2.30 week. Uh, oh, interesting. Two major cases in the Supreme Court. I actually was in D.C. this week, not unconnected with what was happening, uh, about the future of the Internet, the future of Section 230. Keith and I have talked about that. Seems as if, at least according to The Times, the court seems wary of limiting protections for social media platforms. Maybe it's that's because Google made such a professional performance, uh, which... Uh, I was certainly impressed with the prof their professionalism. And then the second day featured Twitter, who were perhaps less professional. Keith, now you get the 2.30, right? Exactly. Now I understand. Very, very imaginative, Andrew. I was very also, clever. I, was I have also to say that your, your uh, newsletter this week um, leads with bubbles and AI. Um and I'm not convinced it was a bubbles and AI week. I think it's a Section 230 week, a very important week for regulation and tech. So what happened in D.C. this week, Keith? Well, what, what really happened is that the those who wish to see Section 230 either modified or removed the protections that it brings did a very poor job of presenting their case. And the judges... Um, through their questions and their comments made quite clear that they were both confused and um, wary of if they were to agree with the uh, plaintiffs, uh, what the consequences would be for the entire internet, which is the, the right thing for them to be concerned about. So it, it was a pretty good example of the American legal system doing what it's meant to do, which is, um, uh, a, figuring out what is legal, but B, interpreting the law and uh, when, be, when asked to interpret it in a way that would effectively change it, um, showing a lot of reluctance in doing that, which is what they should do because the judicial system is not meant to make law. You mentioned the state performed badly, but perhaps the reverse is true. Maybe uh, Google performed well. Should we commend their lawyers, Keith? Well, we, we, we know some of them, don't we, Andrew? <laughs> so we're conflicted. We can only say yes to that question because, A, it's true, and, B, um, they would be very angry with us if we said otherwise. Well, they certainly performed well, uh, at least uh, on the legal front. Um, my And I, I don't want to give away too much. I wish I could because we could have a really interesting conversation, but I'm going to keep that as pillow talk. Um one of the things that's interesting, I know that there was a lot of concern that the court would break down on political grounds, that the left would go after Google because it's a successful capitalist company. The right would go after Google and uh, 
big tech because they see them as being sympathetic to woke culture. But neither of those things seem to happen. It seems as if both uh, the traditional conservatives and progressives were, were both relatively sympathetic. I mean, even Clarence Thomas, yeah. who, uh, who, who is a notorious critic of big tech, seemed open-minded, at least, on this stone. Yeah, well, well, look, let's give some context here. Section 230, the purpose of it, when it was first brought in, and the only purpose I think it's good for, is that it distinguishes between a publisher and a platform and allows the platform to be um, not liable for things said by the publisher. Now, the word the publisher conjures up the New York Times or, or uh, you know, organizations. But actually, in this context, the publisher means me and you, the individual. And so what it means is that Google isn't liable for what I publish on its platform or Facebook isn't liable for what I publish on its platform. And, and, and Twitter isn't liable. And that actually is common sense because you can't have a platform open to the entire population and make the supplier of the platform liable for what everyone says without effectively forcing the platform to close down because those liabilities would be way too onerous to, for anyone to take on. Uh, and, and so that's the purpose. That's, that's why Facebook and Google don't get sued all the time. And they literally would be sued hundreds of times a day, if not thousands of times. Thousands, tens of thousands of times yeah. a day. I mean, Twitter would be sued tens of thousands of times a minute. Exactly. So, so it's, a, it's a totally common sense rule. Um, I think it covers, for example, comments in the New York Times. The New York Times isn't responsible for what is commented online. However, in print, where it makes a choice which comments to publish, then it would be liable because it because it is it then becomes the publisher. So this this definition of who is the publisher is actually the key to the whole thing. And I think it also shows I mean, there's always the old cliche that tech moves a lot faster than government. But I, which is obviously true. Um, but I wonder whether this reiterates that in legal terms, that if tech runs so far ahead of government that these platforms are created and then 20 or 30 years later, people want to change the law. It's impossible. You just can't do it because you've got a, a multi-trillion dollar industry running on top of these platforms. So if the law, maybe in retrospect, 230 was a little generous to internet startups, but there's nothing you can do about that now. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you and you and I probably don't agree there. I mean, I just to. Yeah, I'm critical. I've always been critical of two thirty. I can see the arguments, but now it's just it's just not doesn't make it's not conceivable that that Supreme Court or Congress would blow up a multi trillion dollar industry. Yeah, uh, and 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 they shouldn't because the they're not doing anything wrong is the key. Now, interestingly enough, where they do do things wrong is when they choose to become editors, which is what publishers typically have to do. And, and so if you were to want to be critical of Facebook, um, more Facebook and Twitter than Google, to be honest, because Google doesn't really have a platform that's like that. But remember, Google is being, it's not Google that's being sued here, it's YouTube. I mean, the case originally against quote unquote Google or Alphabet 
was brought by the family of a woman killed in the Paris bombs. And their argument was that uh, the, 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 the terrorist who planted the bomb was radicalized by videos they saw on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and, and uh, that's the equivalent of that would be if this bomber went to a particular coffee shop in Paris every day and you sued the coffee shop because he met people there. You know, it's ridiculous. On the face of it, it's just ridiculous. And also they couldn't prove... I mean, that's the other absurd thing about this case is that they couldn't prove it. I mean, I think one of the things that the Google people and probably most of the tech companies feared was that the case seems so flimsy and absurd on the surface that I think they were concerned that there was such a strong political will to undermine big tech, that it that the law would be overridden by politics. But again, it wasn't. It was a bad case. And as you say, it was badly argued by the, the team on the other side, partly because they just didn't have a case and their brief was bad. So everything about it was bad from their point of view. Yeah. And, I, and I guess it, it doesn't augur well for the future of people bringing uh, big time legal suits against big tech, although that may change. I know you sent me a, a text earlier, uh, an outrage, a Keith Tier outrage about uh, your friends at the DOJ uh, prepping an antitrust suit to block Adobe's $20 billion Figma deal. Why are you so outraged by that, Keith? Well, again, on the face of it, it, it just is uh, ridiculous. Fig Figma has many competitors. Uh, Canva is a competitor. Sketch is a competitor. Um, Adobe, frankly, is a pretty poor competitor. And by buying Figma, it's possibly putting itself in a, in a position where it, it can be a solution for creatives who want that kind of a tool. But even then, it's competing with a lot of others. So what what is the, what is the negative here? I don't, I don't see the negative. It seems to be there's almost a fundamentalist belief that large companies buying uh, other companies is on the face of it a bad thing. Are you accusing your friend Lena Khan of f legal fundamentalism, Keith, or antitrust fundamentalism? She, well, she's, she's anti-capitalist fundamentalism. She, she's basically a fundamentalist, uh, I mean, uh, uh, against capitalism. And, and 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 not in a good way. I, I could if she, if she was fighting for the rights of poor people, I I, I would take her side. This is this is just a, a malicious attempt to stop normal business um, out of a desire to keep you know large companies from being able to grow. I don't get it. I, I literally don't get it. There's no harm here. Yeah. Well, we know you're. Not the biggest fan of Lena Khan. You've had a good week, Keith. Certainly Manchester United. West Ham had a less good week. Uh, they're famously associated, of course, with blowing bubbles. And that's what you lead on this week. Bubbles and AI. Uh, as I said, I'm not convinced that's the main story, but you chose it. You, that's your editorial judgment. Um, isn't there something inevitable about that, Keith? I mean, we knew this was going to happen. Yeah, you know, I tend to choose my editorials based on whether I've got something to say. And I felt like I had something to say about that. And I felt like I'd already said everything that there is to say on 2.30 previously. But you, you could be right. Um, so what, what's going on here is that there is a widespread belief 
having just come out of what everyone describes as a big tech bubble um, and, and having gone through a correction, there is a widespread belief that AI represents the next bubble. And so what I decided to write about, because there were two stories, one by Hunter Walk, and um, I'm blanking on who, who wrote the other yeah, one. Yeah, and the Hunter Walk one is good. Uh, he quotes Carlotta Perez, one of the smartest historians of tech, particularly of tech bubbles and their meaning. So that was a good piece. Yeah, and and the other one, um, uh, the the other one I can't remember who it was by, but anyway, they both they both super good, and and what they point point out is that bubbles, if you want to call them that, are are rational, in the early phases of any technology that see that seems to have transformative capabilities. Um, so why? Uh, so it's not like tulips, where tulips really don't transform anything. This is truly transformational and lots of money is going to flow through AI in the coming decades. I doubt anybody would question that. And therefore, to dive in early and place bets is, a, is an entirely rational thing. And the most intelligent people will do it first, the ones with the most insight and access and money. And others will follow them. And the inevitable outcome of that is an inflation in valuations and what everyone thinks of as a bubble. What Hunter Walk points out is that a lot more money will be made than is being invested, uh, but, but not evenly distributed. So some people are going to lose money uh, in the frenzy to get in. Other people are going to make a lot of money. But if you grossed it all up, a lot more money is going to be made than is invested. Yeah, and the two, probably the two biggest tech companies, well, certainly two of the four large tech companies are in on it too. You you link with an excellent piece by Chris Stoker-Walker, a young writer, by the way. I think it was very good. I, I interviewed him on Keen On about his TikTok book. He's a smart young man. Um, he talks about Google and Microsoft are now in an AI arms race, which was pretty obvious given that, Microsoft are bankrolling uh, OpenAI, and Google, of course, are launching their own platform. How big a deal do you think this AI arms race is? Well, I think Microsoft are destined to lose it. Um, I mean, they've already As made they some, lose all wars. Microsoft, I think they they made some really poor decisions this week. They they in in reaction to the outcry over Sydney that we talked about last week. They restricted Sydney to um, be only being asked five questions before it resets and you have to start over, which means that a lot of the value in it is being is, is destroyed. So they're, they're, they're caving in to the crowd in a way. Um, I think that's a, a fundamental error. And that, that's what Microsoft does. They're, they're afraid of um, being controversial. And, and to be fair, Google's a bit afraid of that as well. That's held them back. And obviously, controversy is, is an inevitable part, especially in, in this space, of, of anything that's new. Anything that's Google new. have the most technology here. I mean, certainly, um, uh, yeah. Microsoft is outsourcing it in their investment. I'm assuming that this arms race will also involve Apple and Amazon in I, terms I don't of acquisitions, Apple... Keith. I mean, the M&A... The yeah. M&A AI space is going to go berserk. I mean, they're, they're going to have insane bubbles, aren't you? Well, it, that's going to be true in, in, every, uh, in every vertical as well. I mean, um, 
the venture capital vertical is the one I'm in. Um, and there's only two or three players who are leveraging AI in decision making. And they're all one of them this week, Signal Fire, announced that it just raised $900 million. Um, money is going to flow to good AI doing a good job of things that are valuable. Uh, and in that sense, it is an arms race. But what Microsoft and Google are doing is providing infrastructure for one part of that arms race. I think it massively underestimates how big the value is to focus on those two. Because I think, I think uh, to the point here in the second part of the headline, changing how we use the internet is, is, uh, is going to be in every field, in, in literally every field. Uh, business to business, consumer applications, medical, um, data analytics. I mean, every, everything that could... Yeah, and not just them. that, but the whole idea of an interface and how we engage with our phones or our computers, everything changes. Yeah. We change. I mean, I mean our, our, our notion of ourselves and our relations with machines change as well. So it, it is a profound... Uh, revolution. What? What? Uh, all revolutions, of course, are profound. You linked this really good piece by one of the smartest people, I think, in tech, Stephen Wolfram. He's probably a little bit too smart for his own good. He, he, he's he's Mr. AI before there was an AI bubble. Um, but this piece, what is Chat GPT doing, and why does it work? Really does a good job leading us through the mechanics of, of Chat GPT. I, I'm not a hardcore tech person. I understood it and I thought it was really good. What did you think, Keith? Well, it's really good in insofar as you can understand it because there's a lot of math in it, um, equation math, not simple math. Um, uh, but I think even without understanding the math, he makes a, a really good essay on how large language models make decisions and why they make the decisions they make. And um, uh, somebody's making a good joke, by the way, Dan Wang is watching us and he says, whatever AI is forcing my camera to keep zooming in and out needs to be scrapped. And I agree with him. I've been noticing it doing it every time I move my head. So not all AI is good, but Stephen Wolfram does a great job of describing, if you really want to understand how chat GPT works, I sent it to my son who's a computer science senior at Syracuse, and uh, he, he loved reading it. He yeah, I mean, what I found really interesting was, and the, su the subtitle of the piece is, it's just adding one word at a time. But that isn't a marketing spin. That's literally how we describe it. Yeah, and I never really had thought about it, but basically it's, it's making up language as it goes. And just as you and I put our words together. I mean, we don't think about each word, but they somehow come out right. This is what ChatGPT is doing. Yeah, exactly right. We, and, and it's drawing on um, a massive body of prior knowledge in order to facilitate that. And it's doing statistics. It's probabilistic right. scoring. Uh, of, uh, we, and, uh, and what struck me about that is that the amount, given that it's analyzing every single word the amount of computing power it must require is phenomenal astonishing and and, and i yeah. don't quite understand how that's going to change the industry either um i mean maybe it's not uncoincidental that there are breakthroughs now on the quantum front too yeah well the quantum 
you don't have a quantum piece this week, but every week there's a usually a quantum piece suggesting some sort of breakthrough or other. Yeah. The problem with quantum is that no one's yet figured out how to run programs on it that don't break for the most part. Uh, there was a story this week that Google had just had a breakthrough uh, s splitting um, data between, um, I think they're called quarks, but uh, uh, nodes in a way in a quantum computer, because if, if all the data was in one, um, it was unreliable that it would continue to exist, which is to do with the quantum state yeah. of a quark. So it's, it's super complex and um, it's very promising, but you, you couldn't run Microsoft Word on a quantum computer. It's not capable of, of that yet. Um, so, Well, I'm but, sure Microsoft will eventually make the breakthrough in quantum or be involved and somehow screw it up. They always manage to shoot themselves in the foot. A couple of interesting political stories you uh, linked to, Keith, this week. The first is... Um, Bessemer Capital calling on its companies to move more cash out of Israel because of all the political turbulence there and the undermining of the Israeli Supreme Court. Is that troubling? Is it good? What's your read of this? Well, it's always difficult to talk about Israel because it's so political and politicized. But um, you're a big fan, aren't you, Keith? Um, I, I'm teasing I you. I'm teasing you. Go on. Yeah, way too simplistic a question for me to possibly answer. But what's ha what's happened is Netanyahu, as we all know, has struggled to get a majority government for the last three elections. He was out of government in the second one. He's now back in in a coalition that involves some what I described as far right uh, coalition partners. And uh, Netanyahu himself is subject to various criminal cases. And what as soon as they got into power, they started to suggest that they should um, remove the right of the Supreme Court to have uh, the ability to determine law when it comes to the judiciary, um, which is basically getting rid of democracy, effectively. Now, th that hasn't actually passed yet. It's a proposal. Okay, so we take that. But wh why, should, why, should, why should venture capitalists call okay. on companies to move more cash out well, of Israel. What's that got to do with anything? Well, well, so this is about the relationship between politics and economics. Um, basically, th these political moves have led to a run on the shekel, which is the Israeli currency, which most startups hold their funds in. Oh, so, I see. So basically, it's, um, it's a pretty narrow self-interest based on the value of money that is causing them to suggest, A, that they shouldn't be in the shekel, and B, they should perhaps consider changing their domicile from Israel to somewhere else. Yeah, it's an interesting story because it suggests that Israel's, I want to say tech dominance, but tech promise could theoretically be undermined by its very odd politics. I, I bumped into Yossi Vadi, or I spent some time with Yossi Vadi um, at DLD, one of the great Israelis, and he's deeply pessimistic about the political future of Israel. And another piece you linked to, which was in some ways even more interesting, was how China has become Saudi Arabia's largest trading partner. You remember George Bush's axis of evil, the Saudis, the Chinese, the Russians, the headlines today about Russia and China now joining the so-called peace talks. Is Saudi part of this 
axis of evil or anti-democratic axis. They've got terrible, um, terrible human rights record. I had someone on my show this week who, uh, a researcher on human rights who, who reminded us that um, Saudi executes more people than Iran. Well, look, there's a medieval aspect to many parts of the world which haven't had the benefit of independent path to capitalism that we had in the UK and the US and some parts of Western Europe and Asia. So the, the, the colonial hangover is that um, the monarchy was never replaced by democracy in most of the world. And so you basically have feudal systems which have feudal legal systems and feudal punishment systems. I don't think you can particularly blame the Saudis for that, to be honest. They are what they are, probably mainly because of us. Um, uh, now, what's more interesting about this story is the decline of the U.S. as their primary trading partner and its replacement by China, which speaks to the wider global shift um, that, that, that I think is inevitable. The, 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 I'm sitting looking at my bookshelves and uh, the, the, the end of empires, there's a whole kind of shelf of books that talk about the end of empires. And, you know, I, there is yet to be an empire that survived. Uh, there is no such thing as a surviving empire. They all die. And America's at the tipping point, and China is at the birth point. Yeah, uh, it would be interesting. Uh, I think if, if the Saudis do end up buying Manchester United, will they ex execute your manager if they don't win any trophies? Uh, they would if he was in Saudi Arabia and he said something uh, blas blasphemous. But, uh, or he let luckily, his wife drive his car. Uh, one person we haven't mentioned recently, and it's not Elon Musk, is our old friend Sam Bankman-Fried. You are you linked to this wonderful piece of FTX co-founder Bankman-Fried facing four new criminal charges. What's astonishing from the photo, not everyone's going to be watching this, some will be listening, is how criminal now Bankman-Fried looks. He looks like Bernie. He's increasingly looking like Bernie Madoff. He's pale. He's in an ill-fitting suit. What's happened to old Sam Bankman-Fried, Keith? So they, so four new charges were added related to uh, fraud and particularly um, preconceived fraud, uh, uh, wire fraud and, uh, and, and uh, money fraud, basically. Um, and so I, I must say, I still don't buy that narrative. I, I think or you the think they just throwing the book at him. They're using him as an example. Maybe they, they should put him in a room with Lena Khan. <laughs> Maybe yeah. he was put in a room with Lena Khan, which is why he looks so pale and miserable. I think I think that we we won't know for a while, and I might be wrong, but I, I think what happened here is that he got in above his neck and did whatever <laughs> he could to bail himself out. And in, and in bailing out, not just himself, but his investors, he crossed legal lines. I doubt being it. very kind. I mean, that's always, I mean, that's, that's the Bernie Madoff defense too. Yeah, but I think it's true in his, this case. I, I, I don't know, but I, because it's intuitive, I, I have no facts. It feels very likely to be true to me. Uh, that, that, that Are you he, a little bit? Sympathetic, maybe because uh, he's a Palo Alto boy and his parents still teach at Stanford Law School. No, actually, I see him as a privileged little stuck up, you know, 
uh, I, I'm from a poor background. I, I have nothing in common with him whatsoever other than I live in Palo Alto. So I, I feel like he's on the other side of the street from me. He's privileged uh, uh, from birth. I, I, I wasn't. So I, I don't actually have a, a sympathy for him in my gut. I just know what it's like to be a startup founder. And when everything goes wrong, the tools available to you are, are, are whatever they are. And if you're tenacious, you'll try and use them. And I, I suspect that's closer to what happened than a preconceived plot to steal. Well, our two final my features of the week, as always, are startup of the week. And this week, you've got a really interesting one, Tome, the um, AI storyteller, um, which, oddly enough, uh, perhaps is contributing to our AI bubble, Keith. Um, is Tome for real? I haven't used it yet, Andrew. Um, I noticed that Lightspeed Ventures invested in Tome. Uh, they were the guys who invested first in, in Snapchat. Um, and it was a significant round of $43 million at the B round. And I, I'll tell you, based on my experience at SignalRank, um, there are not very many B rounds happening right now and not very many are raising $43 million. So this is a substantive investment at a bad time into an interesting company. That's why I, I put it there. I am going to go and play with it because I'm a storyteller at heart and I want to see how good it is. Um, uh, but I think... Yeah, I, just I mean, the, the one thing I'm suspicious of um, is this idea of storytelling at the cost of zero. I think that's the fundamental misunderstanding of this new AI, the, the current AI revolution, is it's going to be a human-machine partnership. So... Yeah. When you've got these 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 AI uh, algorithms that will help write books, for example, you're not just going to give tasks to an AI. What you're going to do okay. is have smart, educated, technically proficient authors working with the AI to produce high quality work, and that's exactly what will happen with movies too. Is it will be a um, uh, an assistant, hopefully, an adjunct to Hollywood types. That's yeah. My yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I don't disagree. I did go. I did play the video, which is in the newsletter as well, so people can play it. Um, but I, generative I, storytelling is—is is this word generative? Is this now entering the lexicon? Are we in a generative bubble rather than an AI bubble, Keith? It's a weird fact that they've chosen this word to describe when a machine draws on a body of of, of content and generates new content. That's basically why they're using the word generative. It's not the most sexy word on the planet, but I do think we're getting to a place where you give machines food. In my case, I give it funding data for venture-backed startups. Um, in this case, it's storytelling uh, narratives and structures. Um, and you then ask the machine to learn from that and tell you what happens next. Uh, or to do something that yeah, it does the heavy lifting and stuff we can't do as writers or investors, but we, we still can do the final mile or the final few meters and, and, and it's valueless without us. Yep. Finally, and it's a bubbles and AI tweet of the week, which maybe explains your headline, Keith, an interesting, amusing tweet, not too technical this week. Exactly. Uh, this is from Flo Crivello or Crivello. I don't know if he's Spanish. Want to feel old? Chat GPT was released 10 weeks ago, which is incredible when you think about it. I mean, it, 
I think four out of those 10 weeks, we've led with stories related to it. So it's, it's grabbed the attention super fast, but it's only 10 weeks in the making. Um, so the rest of this year, there's a lot that will unfold. Well, the big next step will be chat GPT-4, right? Yes, exactly. And we should end, Keith, with a little promotion of yours. I know you did a, a debate with Gary Marcus yeah. on the benefits or, or, or otherwise of, of AI with our friends at Intelligence Squared. When's that going out? It went out today. Um, in fact, I'm going to put the YouTube version in in, in the, the video and podcast that goes out every Friday. So once we've finished and this show's ready to go, I'll post it to my subscribers and I'm going to add the debate uh, YouTube link in there as well. Did you beat Gary, Keith? You know, it's um, it, it, there's no such thing as a winner and a loser in a debate. There's, there's only... There's only um, what the audience thinks is what matters. Um, so and I think Gary, lost. Uh, my guess is Gary thinks he won. Uh, uh, <laughs> Which uh, means I, that I, you think you won too. I, couldn't I think possibly. you and Gary have quite a lot in common. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yes. When are you coming back to the West Coast? Uh, I'm coming back this evening and we're ending this now because I'm not supposed to talk personal issues. So... Bye-bye, everyone. Have a great week. And we will be back next week, no doubt, talking more AI, more generative technology, and maybe even get to talk about Paul Graham and Elon Musk. So we'll see you all next week. Have a great week, Keith, and we'll talk in a week. Thank you, Andrew.